listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Today, as we come back to Romans, we are learning of God's great rescue plan. How did God rescue humanity from its sin? Of course, this whole entire letter is about the gospel, the good news. And what we did a few weeks ago is we arrived at one of the hinges in the letter. When I, what I mean by hinge is it's a transition point. Uh, we are moving from a section that talked about the wrath of God on humanity because of its sin, which began in chapter 1, verse 18, and moved all the way to chapter 3, verses 21. And in that particular verse, Paul pronounces two beautiful words, but now, in the midst of all this sin, now God has provided a way for humanity to have eternal life in heaven. How we can have our sins forgiven. And what we've studied up to this point, if you look in in the the chapter, in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, but now, and we have gotten to the end of verse 24 with that last little phrase of 24 where it says this, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What has happened is this, God has provided something marvelous, something magnificent, and that is in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our text this morning begins in verse 25, and what Paul does is he begins to explain how this redemption in Jesus Christ occurs. How can God redeem us? What happens? What's under the hood? Some of you maybe have been to a car show before and you've seen this beautiful car and it's like, man, this is beautiful. Maybe it's a vintage car, but one of the things they often do at car shows is what? They open the hood so you can look inside and see what is driving this. And what we'll find in verses 25 through 31 is many of the items that are under the hood when it comes to how God can save you and give you eternal life. So let me read. I'll begin reading in verse 25, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Whom God, of course, this is referring to Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. 
Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Would you join me as I lead us in prayer? Father, we all need your help today. We understand that spiritual truth, for it to be grasped, we need divine help. And so I ask again, as I've asked many times from this pulpit, that you would grant your Holy Spirit access into our minds and into our hearts, and would you unlock the truths of this passage for us this morning so that we can be changed and that we can better appreciate what you have done for us and also be those who worship in it, glory in it, and as well advertise it. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What are the greatest displays of human achievement that you have ever witnessed? Maybe it was a sporting event. Many of you were around in 1996 when the Olympics came to Atlanta. Some of you may have been able to go to one of the different events and got to see a magnificent display of human achievement. Maybe that is something that comes to your mind with human achievement. Some of you, maybe it's visiting a gallery. Maybe it's the National Gallery in Washington, and you see all the human achievement that is done in these incredible, exquisite paintings. You see the skill and lifetimes that were invested in being able to capture various pictures. Maybe it's a museum, or maybe it's visiting a certain place. As you know, I'll be visiting Egypt, and uh, one of the things that we will visit there is we will visit the pyramids of Giza, and we will go explore the Valley of the Kings and Luxor and, and view some of these temples. And when, when you see those in person, you realize, how in the world did they build those, and how in the world did they do it at the time they did it? They are magnificent pictures of human achievement. Maybe it's visiting Kennedy Space Center and you see the tools through human ingenuity that were used to propel the human race to the moon. And you look at that and you say, that is an incredible piece of human achievement. But an even greater question that we ought to ask is this, where has God put his achievement, or you could say his glory, on display? Now, simply, of course, we've seen his glory put on display through creation. Every day, I mean, as Mark said as we walked in, what a beautiful day to come in. God paints his glory, and every day it's a new sunrise. Every evening a different sunset. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day it's talking to you, and night unto night it shows knowledge. However, even his creation, I believe, falls short of what I believe is the greatest display of God's glory. 
And that was not getting a man to the moon, but how he can get humanity into his presence. Sinful humanity. And that incredible achievement is what we call the gospel, the good news. And that display of his great work was centered in a person. And that person was none other than God himself, God's son, Jesus Christ. Did you notice that the end of verse 24 announces the redemption in Christ Jesus? He's the focus. He is the ultimate fullness of God's glory. What has Jesus done? What has, what has he accomplished? What has God done with him? Notice the beginning of verse 25. It says this, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward. Most of you probably have a prominent spot in your house where you put forward maybe some of your most prized possessions. Maybe it's on the mantle. It's your favorite picture. Or maybe it's on the coffee table. It's your, a, a favorite vase. Well, the Bible says that God put forward Jesus Christ. That word put forward literally means this, to put forward publicly for the consideration of all. What God has done in this world is he has put Jesus Christ on public display. And I think he's hinting at this. He did it on a certain day many years ago where he allowed Jesus to be publicly crucified for the sins of the world. Today, what I want us to see is this. God displays his glory through the work of his son. God displays his glory through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I love that verse that's in 1 John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he's talking about, he has made him what? Known. What God has done is he has put forth his son so you could know him. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how God displays his glory through the work of his son. What has God done? Well, due to our problem of sin, all of us were caught into the grip of sin what has God done for us? Well, God interceded for us. We've seen, of course, the problem of sin show up time and time again in verses uh, from chapter 1, verse 18 until now. What did God do? Well, he put forward his son. I love the verse that says in Galatians 4, verse 4, but in the fullness of time, God sent, or God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, at the perfect time, God decides to put his son on display. He did it initially through the incarnation. I mean, have you ever thought about God, the infinite God, becoming human flesh like you and me? For 33 years, you could touch God. 
You could handle him. And that's why John would write, we've touched him and handled him. The word of life. I mean, what did, what did the apostle John, he laid his head on Jesus' breast. He, here was God. God put forth his son in the incarnation. But the exclamation point on the incarnation was Jesus' work on the cross. I think this public demonstration, okay, when he says, I put forth my son, because what it says in the rest of the verse, he put forth his son as a propitiation by his blood. Now, what's going on here? Paul uses a word that is full of meaning. He uses the word, he put his son forth as a propitiation. Now, most of you are not using that in your normal language at just in life, okay? The only time you normally hear it is when you sing his robes for mine, okay? Or you're hearing it at church or in some theology class. It's not one that we are used to. But it's interesting, most of your translations, the one I'm translating, I mean, the one I'm preaching from this morning has the word propitiation. Some of you may have a different translation. In fact, you may have the word expiation. What are these two? Well, propitiation means this. It means the appeasement of God's wrath, that Jesus Christ was put forward to appease the Father's wrath. That's what propitiation means. Expiation means this, the removal or the appeasement or the the taking away of man's guilt. So did you notice that one focuses on God being appeased and the other one is on having man's guilt removed? So which is being talked about in Romans 3 verse 25? It says he put him forward as a propitiation or is it expiation? What is it, Pastor Brian? Why the different translations? Well, there's a word that's underlying those two English words, and it's, in fact, the Greek word that's underlying them. And that Greek word, how do you best understand it? Because evidently it's a a pretty significant word. How can you help us with this? Well, something can help us with it, and I'm going to explain it. In Jesus' day, there was a Bible. However, the Bible was only half. It was the Old Testament. Okay, they hadn't written the New Testament yet. And the Old Testament was called, of course, the Law and the Prophets. Okay, and the Old Testament was, most of it was written in Hebrew, Some of it was written in Aramaic. And because there were people in Jesus' day who necessarily didn't know how to read Hebrew, they also had to have translations, didn't they? And the common language, you could say the trade language of Jesus' day was Koine Greek. And so what was available at Jesus' time was a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and it was called the Septuagint. 
It's often referred to by the Roman numeral 70, the LXX. In the Septuagint, so was this Greek translation. How is this helpful, Pastor Brian? Okay. Well, there is a Greek word that is used oftentimes in the Septuagint in the Old Testament that Paul chooses from in order to plant in the middle of this verse. And it's a Greek word that is used often in the Old Testament, but it's the Greek word that means this, mercy seat. So let me read this, whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood. Now, some of you would say, you lost me there. Mercy seat, that's not helpful. Until you start to think of what was that mercy seat. Now some of you are thinking, oh, I know where you're going. Indiana Jones, okay? <laughs> you're thinking, Indiana Jones, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, yes, they mix up a lot of things in Indiana Jones, but the Ark of the Covenant is where I want you to go. The Ark of the Covenant was something that God commanded the Israelites to make. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. And the Ark of the Covenant was carried around Israel, but it was placed in a very special spot within the nation. And it was placed into the tabernacle and ultimately into the temple. But it was placed in an area called the Holy of Holies that was only allowed to be entered into once a year. And that was by the high priest. And he would enter into the Holy of Holies on one day of the year called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And he would come in with the blood of a sacrifice that had been offered for sins and he would take the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, why was this all being done? Well, God in time past had instituted within the law this symbolism of something that was yet to come. And so every year, the high priest would shed this blood, sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat, and what it would symbolize is that God's you could say his wrath would be appeased for their sins and that their guilt would be removed. What this text is saying is this. He's saying that Jesus Christ was put forward to be a mercy seat so that you could have all your sins forgiven, the guilt taken away, and that you could have God's wrath that we have learned about in chapters 118 through verse 30 uh, or verse 20 of chapter 3. We've learned about that wrath on all mankind. He did that for you. In fact, blood was required to show death. And here God tells us what he did to redeem us. He put forward Jesus, but it's interesting it was not privately as the high priest would do. Only one person could go inside.
the Holy of Holies, they could see some of the things that were going on on the outside, but only one could go in privately to do that. But the Bible says that he, Jesus, was put forth publicly. In fact, we believe that he was crucified on one of the main thoroughfares going into the city. It was outside the city gates, but he was crucified there. And his blood was shed to be our propitiation, our expiation. He was our mercy seat. How can you and I be redeemed? We are redeemed by Jesus' work. The only reason mankind can escape God's wrath was that Jesus, or God the Father, provided an atonement, a covering, through the giving of his Son and the shedding of his blood. And he shed his blood publicly for you. I mean, I think about this. We believe that it was on the day before the high day of the feast, the day before the Sabbath, and there was a great, I mean, this was a big festival. People are going in, coming out. Jesus was the Lamb of God whose blood was spilt. And when he did that, God's wrath was appeased. The law was fulfilled. In fact, listen to what Colossians 2 says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and I love this, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How can you and I be saved? How has God provided a rescue plan? What's under the engine? The engine was this. Jesus was your mercy seat. He shed his blood. He broke his body for you. That's the gospel. That was what all the sacrificial system was pointing to. Those are the facts of the gospel. Why did God do this? That's the next question. What did God do? He put forth his son. Why did God do this? Of course, none of you can plumb the depths of God's great love and wisdom. But our text does provide some insight into why God does this. Notice a certain phrase that shows up twice, and it was this. In verse 25 and verse 26, there's the phrase, this was to show, and then in verse 26, it was to show. So did you catch that in the text? Maybe you want to underline these things. It says that God put forth, so he's doing a demonstration, and that's Jesus, And why did he do it? Well, he's doing it to show you some things. Let me read verse 25. He says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness At the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Some of your translations are these. He did all this to demonstrate. In both instances, 
what he's trying to do, God is, is he's trying to show you his righteousness. Now that word righteousness is one that shows up often in Romans. Of course, we saw it in the theme verse of Romans where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we come to the word righteousness in Romans chapter three, I've mentioned to you that you need to know the context to understand what he means by righteousness in that particular scenario. I told you a number of weeks ago, you can use the word ball in a number of different contexts. You can use it for an event. I'm going to the ball. You can use it to describe an object. I'm going to use the ball to throw into the end zone. Uh, I'm having a ball in the same way. Righteousness, you've got to realize what is it, how's it being used to know what particular aspect he's talking about here. And I believe in these two instances where it says he's using Jesus's work as the mercy seat in order to show you his righteous character, that God does everything rightly. He does everything justly. This was to demonstrate that God is perfect in all of his justice. And he does this through that last illustration, I mean, that last phrase of verse 25. It says this, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Let me stop here for a second. I want you to imagine all the sins that had occurred from when Adam and Eve sinned until Jesus went to the cross. You read all the Old Testament. Think of all the iniquity that happened. Yes, the, the, the sentence of sin was death, and all these people died, minus many of you know who've studied the Old Testament, know of a couple of people who Enoch, God took them. We don't know all the different things. We know that Elijah went up in a chariot of fire. But what happened to Abraham, David, Samuel, Solomon, when they died. Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. How could God allow them not to have to go to hell because the wages of sin is death? Why did they not just go to hell? Or Hades, because if you remember the whole story, even earlier in Jesus's ministry where he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and how he tells how the rich man, he ends up going to a place with Abraham, which I believe Abraham was with God. He was laying his head on Abraham's bosom, it says. And the rich man went to what? To hell. How could God take those people before Jesus came and cover their sins and provide atonement for them. Well, the next phrase explains that due to God's patience or forbearance, 
he had passed over former sins, all those sins up until that time. It may have appeared up to this point as if God was overlooking all of those sins. But all of that was in in anticipation of Jesus' final declarative life-altering sacrifice. That payment would be paid for sins. That public display was the vindication of God. You may say, why was God waiting, waiting, waiting? He was waiting till the day because the Bible says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And you and I, imagine this pulpit uh, is a picture of the cross. And imagine all the people in the Old Testament and all of their sins that they had committed. All of them, they looked forward to one day someone who would provide their covering. And all of, the, all of those sacrifices and all of those things, they could not forgive them. And you and I who now live in 2023, to have our sins forgiven, we look back. But why did God put Jesus forward to be a public demonstration? Well, it was to vindicate his own character. He had, he had been patient with all those sins, but it was all perfectly planned. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, maybe a way to illustrate this Whenever I have gone on, I've gone on two cruises in my life, and I think I may have been to one or two, one of those all-inclusive resorts or, or a resort where oftentimes when you show up at one of these places, they give you a tab, okay, that you can charge to. And so all during the week, uh, if it's something that uh, is not covered in the all-inclusive thing, but it's other things, they'll just say, hey, put it on my, my credit. Put it on my credit and put it all, all on my credit. And at the end, you make the final what? The final payment. And they just charge your credit card or uh, you, you, uh, you, you write a check, which or most of us don't do that very much anymore. Uh, and, but in the middle of the, the cruise, they're not holding you to it yet. But you know at the end of the cruise or at the end of the vacation, reckoning day is coming or when your credit card statement shows up in the mail, okay? It was at the cross that all the accounts were settled. It was him and what he did on the cross, and it was settled publicly. Was God unjust for allowing sinners atonement? Why was all this forbearance beforehand? Well, it was all coming. And it was all to show that God is just. I mean, imagine the judge at Friday's sentencing of Alex Murdo. Imagine he would have just said, you know what? Eh, we're not going to make you do anything. And they would have just let him off scot-free. What would everyone have said? That's not what? That's not justice. And maybe some of them were saying, here's all this iniquity. That's not justice. Well, you know what? God put forth his son to show that he is one who is perfectly just. 
And he was patient during those particular times. That payment was paid from the foundation of the world. In fact, in Hebrews 10, a reminder, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Those those sacrifices couldn't take away your sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He accomplished it. And that's why I'll just make it another little uh, application here. That's why what we just did right here is not a re-offering of Jesus as a sacrifice. There are some veins of Christianity that say it is this that has to be offered up again in the body, that bread and that cup actually become God's blood and his body in a, in a, a mysterious way. I would say that is wrong. He died once for all. And what we're doing here is in remembrance of that. And it's not my doing those things that save me. Otherwise, you're going to your own works. God uses Jesus' death to display his justice in the past, but that's not all. It was also for now. Look what it says in verse 26. And it was to show, there it again, his righteousness at the present time. He is continuing. You know what Jesus is continuing to do? He's continuing to forgive sins. I mean, if you were to take my record, Brian Peterson's record for the years that I have lived, just mine, how can God give me eternal life in heaven? How can he do that in the present time? Well, he can do it because he showed it. He put Jesus on display as my mercy seat. He was my propitiation. He was the appeasement of... And so currently he's doing that. That's why those of you who have sin and you're like, how do I get rid of this sin? How do I get rid of this guilt? It was given on Christ. Go to him. If you're holding guilt today, if you're holding sin and it is weighing you down, the Bible says this, the blood of Jesus Christ's son can cleanse you from what? All sin. And it is to show his justice in the past. And it is to show his justice now. And then I love that phrase at the end, that he might be just, he is just, but not only that, and the justifier. He is both the judge and the one who gave his life for us. He's the one who's saving us. He can declare you righteous. Those with faith in Jesus Why did God do this? Well, he did it for his glory, his glory's sake and for our salvation. You want to understand God? Why did he all do this? How do do you understand God? And the only, my only explanation, the only way you can understand truly God is you just got to look at Jesus. Jesus. Some of you right now, you have a very big problem with how God deals with things in this world. You think he's unjust. You think this, you think this, you think this. 
And what did God put forth to show you that he is perfectly just, but also perfectly loving? You have to look at his son. Because it's his son and getting your eyes on Jesus that will help you understand everything else. And that's why he put Jesus on the mantle. That's why he put Jesus in the center of the coffee table. And that's why you need to put Jesus in the center of your life. Because he's where all the fullness is. So we've answered two questions. What has God done? What did God, why did God do this? And the final question is this, what must you do? And the text spells it out repeatedly. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. Did you notice how many times faith is mentioned in this section? It's mentioned in verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 28, verse 30, and verse 32. Look what it says in verse 25. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How can you have all of that work credited to your account? You have to receive Jesus by faith. This is not, not everyone will have this atonement on them. It's a particular atonement. Those who receive him by what? Faith. Of course, it is sufficient and available to all. But that covering comes to those who receive it by what? You have to receive it by faith. It was uh, up until I had bought my first house that the most expensive purchase I had ever made was my engagement ring. In fact, some of you may have known this. I, uh, I made my money for my, first, uh, for my wedding ring by selling Beanie Babies. Okay, Remember the Beanie Baby craze? Okay. I was a Beanie Baby marketer, okay? And, and I, I took advantage of the craze, and that's how I got the money for my engagement ring, okay? So Jen is wearing a Beanie Baby, okay? <laughs> so... When I presented that gift to Jen at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, all she had to do was what? Receive it. That's all she had to do. It was a gift. I'd, here it is, just receive it. Yes, I wanted to hear her say yes. Okay. It wasn't something that she had to pay me for. But it did mean a commitment. It meant the the total change of her life. Although she may have not bargained on all that it would entail. But the point is this. All she had to do was receive it. And what is the response that you and I have to what Jesus Christ did You have to receive that work by faith. And I will tell you, it will involve commitment. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. But I'll tell you this, you'll realize that when you come to him, it is not a burden. In fact, your burdens are being taken away and he changes your life. You have to receive him by faith. In fact, John 1 
talks about this. He came to his own Jesus, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there's that faith, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You have got to transfer your dependence on Jesus' work instead of yours. And that leads us to the second thing you need, you need to uh, do, and it's this. Stop boasting. That's what he does in verse 27. What then becomes, becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we have spent a lot of time before this because Paul has talked about this in the previous sections. But what he's saying is this. There is no type of law-keeping or works that you could have done in comparison to one drop of that precious blood that forgave you of your sin. And if you try to bring any of your own currency your own moral currency of what you've done and what you've achieved, let me tell you, it is an offense. Because what did Jesus Christ do? I mean, God the Father gave his ultimate possession, his own self, his own son. And he spilled his blood. And if you show up at heaven and you say, hey, the reason I can get in there is because, hey, you know what? I went to church every Sunday. I gave a lot of money. I observed that communion thing you told me to do. I did a lot of things. And if that's your explanation for when you get to, I mean, you won't have a chance to explain. Because the only thing that can save you is you have to place your faith in one thing, and that is Jesus. And what that does is this, that eliminates any boasting that you could have. No boasting. The only boasting you can do is this. You boast in Jesus Christ. He did the law-keeping for you perfectly. Boast in him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31 says this, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I'll tell you this, this is for everybody. What does the text spell out? It says it's not just for the Jews only, but also for the what? The Gentiles. And in fact, he emphasized the worthlessness of doing the law. He says, it is for the circumcised, which was the Israeli, you could say, visible marker for the men that they had kept the law. It's almost like he's blatantly saying it. It is for both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. It's not the law that will do anything for you. The whole whole law was written so that it would bring you to Christ. It was to point you to him. Will you stop boasting in yourself and place your faith in Jesus Christ? He offered himself for you. And those of you who have come to him, should you not put him on public display for all to see? So today we've just seen this. God displays his glory through the work of his son. Will you see that glory 
Will you see that he was your mercy seat? Will you place your faith in him? And then those of you who have done that, that you would just live your life boasting in him. I mean, I'll tell you, if Lebanon Baptist Church would just get a grip on a daily basis that everything is Christ, that your whole life is Christ, and that all your boasting is not in you and in your own works. All you're doing is you're boasting in the Lord and you're lifting him up. You know what? He would, you would draw many people to him through your life. That's what this text does. God displays his glory through the work of his son. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.